Good morning. We are here to discuss Parshas Va'era. As Frida mentioned, we are joining Jews worldwide. Frida mentioned that there was a, a specific gathering at the Kotel here on Yom Kippur Katan, as uh, Rosh Chodesh is tomorrow night. And <clears throat> of course, we're all davening for the safety of Paul Yisrael, Achenu Kobes Yisrael. A little prayer that uh, I'd like to say is, may our learning be dedicated to the safety of our IDF soldiers and to Achenu Chaldeis Yisrael and to the immediate return of all who were kidnapped and to the complete healing of all those wounded and to the speedy comfort of all those suffering. May Hashem avenge all the evil committed and planned by our enemies upon them and their supporters. Today, Parshas Ve'era, the title for the class is The Art of Process. So nice to see uh, some familiar faces that I haven't seen in a little while. Welcome back to the class, The Art of Process. Month of Teves is dedicated by Sylvia Levy and family in commemoration of the 10th yard site of her beloved father, Yitzchak ben Moshe. Isaac Sterenthal lived a life full of purpose and unrelenting optimism. Very responsible, firm, honest, and loyal you could always count on his support and his word. Isaac's love of family and his quiet acts of kindness are transcendental. His family has been deeply inspired by his example and are forever transformed by his abundant blessings. As we begin the discussion today and we acknowledge the important yurtzeit of uh, Sylvia's father, and um, all the incredible things that Jews have done around the world, we are reminded about the foundational importance of the Exodus story, of which right now the Torah is describing in various ways in great detail. An interesting question that we're going to get into a little bit further is that certainly whatever the Torah does teach us is of phenomenal and infinite importance. Now, it's so incredible that the entire Exodus story seems to be a long dragged out process by which Moshe is going back and forth with Pyro threatening his, his agreeing, his refusing, and then seemingly he'll agree again and then he refuses again. And so obviously we need explanation on all of this, but most importantly is how does all of this inform us and help us today and there's no question, we need lots of help today. So we're going to start with the first 13 sentences of the parsha in a brief summary. Hashem sp speaks to Moshe and says, I am Hashem, yud ke vav ke, what we call the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name yud ke vav ke. And he says, I appear to the forefathers, and I did not inform them or make known to them the name of yud ke vav ke, a big discussion in the commentary on that. I do not want to get into that. We don't need to today, but it's certainly very interesting. And then Hashem says, I established my covenant with the forefathers to give them the land of Canaan. And I have now heard the screaming, the suffering of the Jewish people. I remember my covenant with the forefathers. Therefore, go tell the Jewish people the four languages of redemption. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to take them to me. They will know that I am Hashem, your God. I will bring them to the land that I raised my hand, I swore to give to them as an inheritance. I am Hashem Yudke Vavke. Moshe does give this information 
to the Jewish people, but they do not listen to him because they are short of breath from and from difficult labor. Basically, they seem dispirited. Hashem then says to Moshe, listen, come to Paro, the king of Egypt, and let him send the Jewish people out from his land. Moshe speaks to Hashem saying, listen, the Jewish people that I just spoke to, they did not listen to me. How is Pyro going to listen to me? And I am unable to speak well because I have a speech impediment. To which Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, and he commands them to the Jewish people, go to Pyro to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. That is the first 13 sentences of our parasha. So our questions are as follows. Number one, what is the point of the rigmarole of repeatedly threatening Pyro with a plague if he does not let the Jews leave for three days to serve Hashem. Then we get his initial refusal to agree, to acquiesce. Then he does agree to submit when the plague comes, followed by a disallowance again and again and again. Why does Hashem not simply deliver a knockout punch from the outset? Like many of us are wondering, why don't we just carpet bomb, right? So obviously that's a different question politically today than it is for Hashem to decide what to do then or when Hashem does things directly. So the question is, why not begin with the knockout punch of the plague of the firstborn and the people will go? Number two, we have this paragraph that I just ran through that describes, it's, an, it's a cryptic idea, describing that the name of Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, the Yud, K, followed by the uh, the Vav and the hay was not made known to the forefathers. But then the Torah emphasizes that now is the time, now, here in Parshas Va'ira, at this point in history, in the year 2448 or 47, uh, probably, now is the time for that name to get known. What is the significance of this concept? What can we learn from it? And seemingly, the main message is not the four-letter name versus Elohim or any other name of Hashem. Seemingly, the main point is that Everybody should know Hashem is real. Whether you call him Hashem, whether you call him Elohim, whether you call him Yukibaf, whether you call him Shakai, whatever name, hey, Hashem exists. What's the deal with the emphasizing of this four-letter name of Hashem in any way that we can understand and then hopefully in some fashion apply? And question number three, and this is a very difficult question. My brother, Rabbi Yitzchak Zweig, asked me this question approximately 35 years ago. And it's really kind of stunning when you think about uh, this observation because it's so obvious, but we all seem to gloss over it. In our parsha, after the Torah goes through a list of names of the Jewish people, Hashem again seems to tell Moshe, hey, listen, you guys got to go to power. You got to speak to him. And Aaron is going to be your spokesperson, your Navi, meaning like a person who will speak on your behalf. You're going to say whatever you need to say to Aharon. Aharon will convey to Hashem whatever Hashem wants Pyro's message to be, I'm going to harden the heart of Pyro. This is chapter seven, sentences one through seven. And I'm going to bring so many miracles on Egypt. And Egypt will know that I'm Hashem, Yudke Vavke, when I stretch my hand over the land of Egypt and I take the Jewish people out. And here we go. Moshe, by the way, was 80 years old. And Aharon was 83 years old in their speaking to Pyro. Now, right off the bat, we could say, you know, so many times the Torah could have told us people's ages. Why is the Torah making a point of it over here? Now, also, in general, we sort of understand Hashem 
teaching us through the Torah, the ages of people, because having historical context and a timeline helps the mind to get organized and process when things happen and understand things. Very good. But if I didn't tell you that over here, Moshe and Aharon are 80 and 83, guess what? We're going to figure it out later because the Torah tells us after 40 years in the desert, Moshe is 120 when he dies and Aharon is 123 when he dies. So 120 minus 40, 123 minus 40 are 83 and 80 respectively, right? So why do I need to tell you the ages here? We could figure it out. But that's not my brother's question. His question is actually much stronger. His question is, wait a second. I just glossed over a fact that seems to make all this information untrue. Because right here, the plague of the blood has not yet happened. Okay, we have not started any of the plagues yet. If you look in the Chumash, chapter 7, sentences 1 through 7, it's only after those sentences that we begin. The dam, sardea, the blood, the frogs, the lice, etc., which takes some time, right? It doesn't just automatically happen that the plagues come in one second or in one day. It takes some time. And in fact, according to the rabbis, it seems that every plague takes approximately three weeks. But even if you don't go with that interpretation, it seems to take some time. And what we're saying is that Moshe and Aharon seem to be 80 and 83 respectively before the 10 plagues begin. Well, that's interesting because if Moshe is already 80 years old at that time and the plague of the firstborn happens on the 15th of Nisan that we call Pesach, then it would seem that at the plague of the firstborn, Moshe has become 81 because Nisan is after Adar. Moshe is born in Adar, which would seem to mean that Moshe is 80 at the beginning of the plagues and he's 81 by the time the plague of the firstborn rolls around. But if you add 40 to 81, now you get 121. Wait a second, I thought Moshe Rabbeinu dies when he's 120. That's my brother, Rabbi Yitzvah excellent, really terrific question. And it seems incredibly difficult to answer. There are people who maybe want to calculate ages in the Torah differently. I honestly have to admit, I don't understand that answer. I don't think it answers this question. Maybe I just uh, don't get it, need to research it. But I don't understand how it answers this question. I'm going to suggest a totally different answer. And again, the question is, if the Jews are in the desert for 40 years and before the plagues start, Moshe is 80 and Aaron is 83, then presumably when the plagues are over, which is somewhere between five and 10 months, seemingly at a minimum, then they should be dying at ages 121 for Moshe and age 124 for Aharon. And that contradicts what the Torah explicitly says. In the end of Parshas Vezos Abracha, at the end of the Torah, the Torah says very, very clearly that Moshe is 120 years old when he dies. How do we make the calculation? If the Jews are in the desert for 40 years, that means Moshe has to be 80 when they enter the desert, not 81. Especially, you go according to the rabbis, that Moshe Rabbeinu actually died on his birthday exactly at age 120. So that's a very interesting question, and we're going to deal with that question as well. So the three questions that we have is, what's the point of this entire seemingly insane exercise of going to power and warning him, his refusing, then he agrees because the play came, and then you let him go. It's kind of like, I have an idea. Let's make a peace treaty with these guys next to us in Gaza. Because that'll work. Or in Lebanon with Hezbollah, because that'll work. right? We've tried and tried and tried and tried. We would think that it's just absurd already. 
Hashem obviously knows this going into it. So what's the deal? Why is he going again and again and again to Paro? Just strike him with the firstborn, done, out. Number two, that the Torah opens with this cryptic idea that we want the Yudke Vavke, the four-letter name of Hashem, that's uh, very lofty. We don't uh, speak it explicitly, what we call the Tetragrammaton. Hashem wants that now this name is going to become known. What's happening with this concept? What does it teach us and why at this point in history? And finally, how do we reconcile that Moshe and Aharon are dying at age 123 and 120 when it seems that they're already 80 and 83 before the plague start, which really should make them 121 or 124 when they die? Those are our questions. So I'd like to begin with a very basic premise that I think we probably all agree is true, but we don't necessarily pay enough attention to it. And certainly we generally don't have the patience for it. And it is the concept of process. Uh, before I explain, I just got a message that Ezra Hashem, my father is yes, going to be giving class, a little bit stuck in traffic, but God willing, my father will give class after this. So let's just remind ourselves at the end. So there is something in creation that's called a process. Here are some examples. And Hashem built this concept of process into creation. For example, the seven days of creation, right? Hashem did not ex uh, create everything like that, even though Hashem could have created everything with the snap of a finger, so to speak, instantaneously, and everything could just be there. It was a process, okay? Then, and even more to the point, we have that Hashem spoke 10 utterances in order to create the different things in creation. That's what the rabbis say. Hashem used 10 utterances to create the entire universe. Then we also have something that is important to note, which is Shabbos is a day of completion. Not every day is Shabbos. Shabbos finishes a cycle, which means that there was a process. There's a completion. And of course, we have this ongoing obligation to live life with this kind of work rest process but even more crucial and more pointedly than all of those examples is that because of sin process is absolutely integral we cannot survive as human beings without process because of sin and very simply put we call this time to repent hashem gives us time and opportunity to repent. The entire concept of dying and then getting resurrected is, of course, a process. So sin actually makes it 100% essential that there shall be process in creation. So death and resurrection, time for repentance, the, the idea that we have a gradual growth from imperfection towards perfection is now, in fact, the only way that man can achieve his purpose, which is a bonded, intimate relationship with Hashem, built on man's choosing to self-perfect and become like Hashem. And, you know, thank God, we have 613 main categories of how we do this, that we call the mitzvos, that obviously can't happen in a split second, right? The entire thing is a major process. Now, on a practical level, in the world. Whenever we designate goals and implement process, we are allowing for our transformation. When this is done for the good, we are self-creating 
and becoming godly. So let's use a non-spiritual example for a second, even though it's also a spiritual example. Teaching a child to read, that's a process. And it's a pretty complex and involved process. When a person goes through the process of learning to read for good purposes, now if you want to graduate it to a spiritual process, like for example, to learn Torah, they are working through their choice to self-develop, to gain a skill that will allow them incredible growth opportunities. That's awesome. Okay. That's an example of creating a process that is implemented by having a goal and figuring out all the steps needed to get there. And when it's done, you have a tremendous result product at the end with incredible growth opportunities. Now, of course, this can also be done for the evil. A person has an evil goal in mind. They go through a process called building, I don't know, 300 miles of tunnels underground to build weapons to attack your neighbors who gave you all, all the money and opportunity for it, right? That would be an evil design and would be a process of self-developing into creating oneself to be evil instead of to be good. So, back to our Parsha. The point of the plagues is for Hashem to take Paro, the Egyptians, and all the Jews through a process by which they will choose either their self-perfection or self-destruction. But it takes time. And Hashem gives them time, all the Jews, all the Egyptians, a chance to choose. So if you want to think about it on the most positive uh, note, we'll talk about Moshe's evolution into a leader together with his brother Aharon, the 20% who actually leave as per the rabbis, versus the 80% of Jews that do not, and the Egyptians that get decimated, right? That's where you see the contrast of where taking people through a process can work one way or the other. But the whole point is, that's how Hashem designed creation. What this leads to is really kind of a stunning answer to my brother's excellent, brilliant question. I'm going to do it by way of example. You have a good friend, because it's always easier to talk about someone else than ourselves. And the good friend in... Uh, unfortunately is suffering uh, some terrible situation in life and you recommend that they go to therapy. If you want to think about psychoanalytical therapy, you want to call it occupational therapy, you want to call it physical therapy, whatever, whatever problem you want. Okay, so you recommend that they go to therapy, they come back after one, two or three visits and they say, you know, I followed your advice, I paid top dollar, I went to this most excellent therapist, it didn't work, it doesn't work, what other suggestions do you have? What are you going to tell this person? It's a process. One, two, or three times is not therapy. Maybe you started. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it takes five times or 10 times or 20 times or 30 times. It all depends on the nature of the problem, what the steps are to get there. That's called a process. Well, guess what? It's not considered having gone to therapy until the process is complete. Now, that doesn't mean it always works, but at least there has to be the methodology, the necessary ingredients with the des that designed intention and goal that's able to be achieved. Hashem 
has no illusions, as he spells out very clearly, that Paro is not going to just say, oh, yeah, Hashem, oh, yeah, Hashem, right, 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 yeah, I really shouldn't be doing the slavery thing. I'm going to send the, the Jews out. Hashem has no intention for that to work in the first conversation. And by the way, that's explicitly stated in several sentences. Hashem tells Moshe from the beginning, he's not going to listen to you. So what are you doing? The answer is, we're taking Paro through a process so that he has a chance to choose. And if he doesn't choose correctly, so then the outcome will reflect that. And by the way, Hashem is also taking Moshe through a process and the Jewish people through a process. Therefore, in chapter seven, sentences one through seven, when the Torah says, Hashem says to Moshe, listen, go with Aaron, I will be your spokesperson, and I'm going to make Paro's heart hard, and I'm going to bring all my miracles into Egypt. And Moshe was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old, and they're speaking to Paro. The Torah is not talking about how old Moshe and Aaron were before the process was completed. They're talking about the entire process is going to be done, that's considered that then they've spoken to Pyro. That's when the message could have landed. That's when it actually sort of does land right before the plague of the firstborn. Even then, Pyro doesn't really listen. And therefore, when they are finished speaking to Pyro, they've taken Pyro through the entire process, which didn't really work for Pyro. That's when Moshe is 80 years old. So you read the sentence and you mistakenly think that the Torah is telling you Moshe was 80 before the plague of the blood. But the Torah is describing the process. And it's saying when the process is done, that's when the conversation with Pyro happened. That's when Moshe is 80 years old. And guess what? That is in Nisan after Adar. Because this conversation that Moshe has with Pyro before the plague of the firstborn is just about Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Maybe it's right before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. But the point is, that's when Moshe is 80 years old. So even though the Torah mentions it earlier, what it's really telling you is, look, guys, this is a process. That's what those whole seven sentences in chapter seven are coming to describe. And then Moshe is 80 years old and Aaron is 83 years old. But why does the Torah teach us that? Our question, right? We could figure it out later. Exactly for this reason. This is the incredibly profound way that the Torah is telling us, guys, this whole Egyptian thing is a process. You cannot look at the beginning, for example, and say, oh, I can't believe the work only got harder. Like we learned at the end of last week's Parsha. I went to Parsha, I spoke to him, and hey, everything got worse. That's what you call philosophical myopia. It's very narrow thinking and very narrow perspective. Cannot look at the first conversation with Pyro as having gone through the process. That's what Hashem is teaching Moshe here at the beginning of Parshas Era, which is the conversation that Hashem has with Moshe immediately following Moshe saying, hey, Hashem, from the time you sent me to the people, things have only gotten worse. Says Hashem, Moshe, it's a process. You cannot go from zero to 100 in the first conversation. We cannot look at October 7th and hyper focus on that without stepping back and saying, hey, where does October 7th fit into the whole process of the Jewish people living in the land of Israel 
since 1948. Where does it fit in the entire scheme of the exile of the 2000 plus years before that? How does it all somehow help to complete a process and what is the message of that process? That's really where the name of Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, becomes revealed. Because on a much deeper philosophic level, part of the entire process of creation is for man to come to know more deeply and intimately the existence of his creator, the existence of Hashem. Now, obviously, Hashem is inexplicable, right? We can't just understand Hashem. But the revealing of the four-letter name of Hashem is the beginning of the bridge which helps man to understand way beyond what man is originally capable of understanding when it comes to Hashem. That's really what the Yudke Vavke is coming to elucidate for us in the Torah. Because the Yudke Vavke speaks about the infinite nature of Hashem, Hashem always was, Hashem always is, Hashem always will be, which is something that a human being cannot really comprehend. But even more than that, it comes to teach us that this infinity that is Hashem is really the source of everything, and therefore everything really fits in to the existence of Hashem, and therefore there is some sort of collective tapestry that is happening in all of creation. And that's a very, very difficult concept to comprehend, and it takes creation, an entire process, to actually begin to comprehend it. So even us Jews, that we know on some philosophical level that it's true, and through the miracles in Egypt, we began to see the magnificence of the infinity of Hashem in the various plagues and how they manifest in the incredible ways that it affects the Egyptians and not the Jews. Let's take the fire and water coexisting in the, in the, in the miracle of the hail, where you had the ice and the water coming down and the hail together, the ice and the fire coming down and the hail together. All of these are just kind of scratching the surface of this infinite being that we call Hashem in the UK Vavke, but it does give us more insight. It does give us more awareness. And the message is that Hashem is taking the entire world through the process first to come to know him, that he exists, that he's involved. But even more importantly is more understanding of his, so to speak, infinite nature, what we call the UK Vavke. And even though we are limited in our understanding, as more, the more we self-develop and self-perfect, because Hashem wants us to get to know him, the more of him, Yilkei Vavke, actually becomes revealed. And that's why it's happening now at the time of the Exodus, because Hashem is becoming more revealed in creation. There are many, many, many other things to say about this name. It relates directly to Parshas Peshalach and to Moshe Rabbeinu as the servant of Hashem in general. I don't want to go into all of that now. But for our purposes, what's good to go into now is that Hashem is taking us through a process. We have to approach everything as a process. And therefore, the main question we really need to ask ourselves is what is the goal of this process and what does that shed light or how does that shed light on the immediate events with which we are dealing? So, for example, in Exodus and then to our times, when Moshe is shut down by Pyro and then the situation is made worse, at the end of last week's parasha, Tara says to Moshe, you're stopping the people from working. They need to get back to work. And then Tara decrees that now straw will no longer be provided for the Jewish people. So Tara makes it worse. Moshe 
is confronted with, hey, Hashem, why is this worse? Why did it become worse? So he has a choice. Moshe could say, wait a second. Why was this necessary in the process? What's the ultimate goal? Obviously, part of the ultimate goal is that the Jews should accept this fate, that Pyro should be given the opportunity to himself entrench further and deny Hashem or recognize, but he chose to deny because that's what we need in the process are these opportunities of denying or accepting, denying and complaining or accepting and dealing and figuring out next steps, which is what the Jews needed to do, which is what Moshe needed to encourage the Jews to do. Instead, Moshe asks, hey, Hashem, why, is it make, why are you making this whole thing worse? And then we have Parshas Ve'era to introduce the idea that everything here is going to be part of a process, which is, of course, why Hashem does not just deliver a knockout punch and redeem the Jews. Because getting the Jews out of Egypt is no big deal for Hashem. Let's face it. No problem. Hashem Destroying Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran is no big deal for Hashem. But that's not the point. The point is, what are we Jews going to do? How are we going to identify with Hashem? How are we going to handle our suffering? Are we going to accept the existence of Hashem? Are we going to accept the wrongdoings that we've done and take responsibility for them and commit to change? Are we going to help ourselves and more Jews become educated to Torah study and the truth of the words of Hashem that actually teach us practical, real-life lessons that help us to be better people and to raise better families and to have a better world? Or are we going to say, listen, Hashem, you know, just forget the process. You, you just all make it happen. Yeah, sure, we could say that, but it's not going to happen. That's not what Hashem does. That's not the point of creation. And so, therefore, we should not be hyper-focusing our attention on October 7th. Instead, we should be looking at the entire range of wars and events, everything that's occurred from the time of the establishment of the state of Israel until today. And obviously, the broader scope of Jewish history is even more important. The question becomes, what is the process through which Hashem is taking us? What are we meant to learn? What should be our goals? And if we establish our goals and then implement a step-by-step -step process towards proper self-development and choosing that which is good, we are likely to achieve the ultimate goal that Hashem has in mind for us. Now, the ultimate goal obviously includes the Messianic era and the infinite future that follows. Wonderful. But we have to be starting with, okay, well, where are we trying to get to? How are we getting there? And uh, my friend Joseph Rackman pointed out to me today that most of us do this with our children. He did use the example of reading. Of course, it you know, we, we, we understand this intuitively as parents that, you know, we don't just uh, enter our three-year-olds into college, right? I mean, I mean, today, who knows, even knows what college to go to, it's a different problem. But we start the process of education, uh, you know, basic, and then based on their abilities, we advance. Obviously, it takes years and years for a person to become properly educated. Jewish education teaches us that it takes a person years and years to learn how to make proper choices, right? And as parents, we have to understand that it's a process. Uh, some people call this, the child is learning to share, right? Okay, so we understand that it doesn't just happen that a child automatically knows how to share. It takes time and it takes a process. So I think that if we then apply this entire teaching to what's happening in the world today, we really have to be both gentle and vigilant with ourselves in our own process. 
what are the top three things in our lives that we need to fix? Is it a relationship? Is it a behavior like an addiction in which we're stuck? What is it that we need to fix in ourselves? What is the process of helping us fix it? And then implement the process. Because if we do that, then we're getting the point. Then we're getting the message. And as a country, if we do that, then we're getting the point. How can we fix this issue with you know, the Supreme Court rulings? What is the process? How, what, what should it be? How do we get to a solution? What should be the process and how do we get there, right? How do we make sure that the oneness that Jews are experiencing nowadays in loving each other better, in appreciating each other more, in the incredible devotion where people are putting their entire lives on the line, both physically and even just financially in order to fight these wars. And therefore we appreciate all these Jews more. How do we make sure that that endures? What's the process to make sure that that unity endures? These are the types of questions I think that we need to have. These are hopefully the questions that will yield answers that then if we implement them, we are truly learning the message of the Exodus story. To say it differently, how can we avoid an 80% decimation, even if that's a parable, how can we avoid an 80% decimation that happened in Exodus from happening again today? If we want to ask ourselves, how can we encourage young Jews to get married and have children and to live Jewish lives? How can we do that? And what are the steps to implement that process? All of this, by, by having a perspective of process, is really, I think, the main message of Parashas Fa'era. I'll just conclude with a really interesting teaching from the Targum Yonas and Ben Uziel. It's, he's a fascinating uh, commentary to the Torah. People who study him love it. Um, it's really just incredible the way he translates the Torah and interweaves uh, certain Midrashic ideas. So, for example, he talks about the staff of Moshe Rabbeinu, and he, in different sentences, gives different information about this staff. Everybody's aware of Moshe's staff, and that he does the miracles at the burning bush. Hashem asks Moshe, what is this thing in your hand? What is this in your hand? And Moshe says, oh, it's a staff. So if we look at the Targum Yonasan, which is, again, an Aramaic translation that interweaves uh, certain ideas into the text, Moshe says, chutra. That's the Aramaic word for a stick or a staff. Some of you might recognize that word from the Chad Gadya. Chad Gadya uses the word chutra to mean a stick. So the Targum Yonasan says, what is this? Oh, it's a stick. Okay. But then after the conversation at the bush, when Moshe is back in his father-in-law's home and now he's ready to go to Egypt and the Torah says he takes the staff of Elohim, Biado, he takes the staff of Hashem in his hand. Over there, the Targum Yonasan says he takes the staff upon which is engraved the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of Hashem. He didn't say it before. He only says it now when Moshe is taking the staff. That's interesting. But even more interesting than that is Moshe uses the staff that now we know has engraved in it the four-letter name of Hashem for all the plagues. But when it comes time to split the Red Sea and he stretches his hand over the Red Sea, over there, the Targum Yonason says, on that staff was engraved the name of Hashem, the 10 plagues, right? all those 10 plagues that we know, the names of the three forefathers, the names of the six mothers, yes, six, because uh, Avram, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rivka, and then 
Bill Hazilpa, Rachel, and Leah. All of that, including the 12 tribes' names, are engraved on the staff. So I want to ask you a question. If those things were engraved in the staff, then you would think when Hashem says to Moshe, hey, what is this in your hand? Moshe should be saying, you know, I'm kind of wondering the same thing. What do you mean? And why do I have the names of the forefathers here? I was going to ask you, what is this staff? But instead, Moshe says, oh, it's a staff. Oh, yeah, it's this. I'm holding a staff. Moshe doesn't seemingly realize that any of those things are there. You know why? Because it takes a process for the name of Hashem to get revealed. What I believe the Targum Yonason is saying is that as Moshe took the staff through the process, that's when the engravings became revealed to him. When we go through the process, that's when the name of Hashem becomes revealed to us. It's kind of like 50 years later, you look back at your life and you say, oh, now I understand why all that happened. That's what it means that the exodus, that life, and that creation is a process by which the name of Hashem becomes revealed. So Moshe's staff didn't have the obvious carvings and engravings of those names until he decides, you know what, I'm going to take this staff, I'm going to do these miracles, even though I'm going to look like a lunatic standing in front of Pyro, like, oh, Hashem, Hashem sent me, let the people go, because, you know, I had a burning bush experience. As soon as Moshe takes the staff, yeah, then the Yud Kei the name of Hashem, is actually visible to him. And then I believe as he starts performing the miracles, the plagues become revealed. And then when he's standing at the Red Sea, it's not only the plagues, it's telling you, guess what? You know why you can stretch your hand and split a sea? Because your fathers are Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Bilha, and Zilpah, and they are bonded with my name. That's why you can split a Red Sea. That's why you can destroy your enemies. And that's why if you go through the process with diligence, you will bring the redemption, not only now here in Egypt, but God willing in our times as well. Questions or comments? Thanks. Eva. See you next week. See you next week. Interesting. Thank you. I've heard that before. Yeah. All right. That's a wow. Bye, Kiva. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. We have a question in the room. My question is why, I, I got the process, I picked up what you said, but really the process was mostly about the 10 plagues and that's where it's most obvious, the 10 plagues and and Pharaoh rather than on Moshe. I mean, Moshe picks it up through the burning bush and why, why is there so much emphasis on Pharaoh catching the process? And then at the end, he, he fails by running, you know, by, by chasing after them. So your question is that it seems like the process is more focused on Pyro and let's say the Egyptians than on Moshe and the Jews. Yes. Is that your question? Yes. So it's a fair question, but I think it's not true. Um, so for example, other places where, in other words, the process that's unfolding with Pyro really instigates the process that's happening with the Jews, right? So for example, the one that I gave, when Moshe first goes to Pyro, and he gathers the Jews, and now they accept. That's a process for the Jews to accept that Hashem sent Moshe, right? Then, I'm, I'm just going to give you details that we didn't talk about today. What's that? Oh, it does. It does. It talks about that Moshe, first, Moshe and Aaron first went to the Jews, and they did the miracles for the Jews, and the Jews believed. And they bowed down to Hashem. It says it in Parashat And then, 
when it says that Moshe and Aaron go to Pyro and they had earlier gathered the elders, it only says Moshe and Aaron go to Pyro, so the rabbis explain because the elders fell away. They, they didn't want to go to that meeting. Uh, you've all been to meetings like that, right? Where you have the whole team, you get in there, and suddenly it's just you with the cause, right? That's what happened then. And then, finally, Moshe goes uh, to Pyro, right? He does his thing. And he's, that's worse. And then not only does Moshe complain, the Jews confront Moshe too. And then Hashem tells Moshe, what's your problem? Uh, I told you to do this. This is the way the process works. So then Moshe goes, speaks to the people, but they don't listen. They're dispirited. Right. And then every time that Moshe is going to Pyro with the refusal, Moshe has to obviously deal with that. I'm sure some of the Jews are also wondering what's going on. So I do think that it's really a process for everyone. I think. That's the way we learn it. What's that? The way we learn it. Yeah, we learn it about Pyro. But also then, of course, if you if you understand that not all the Jews left, whatever the numbers are, then obviously some went uh, through the process successfully and some failed. Right, so that seems to be pretty clear that there's a process for everyone. Any other questions or comments? Okay, I think we're good. Wish Thank everyone you. a great day. Thank you. Okay, bye everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you.